All right. Well, good morning, friends. Uh, welcome here, both those who are in the room with us and those who are uh, joining us online. My name's Brad. I'm part of the teaching and the leadership team here at Jericho Ridge. And uh, thanks, Katie, for sharing uh, family news with us this morning. In this sort of post-Easter till June season, there is a lot going on in the life of our community. And so there's lots of ways for you to get connected and, and some new things as well. We've got a walking group that's going to be starting. If you want to just casually uh, connect with people, get to know names outside of Sundays. Uh, Pastor Jenna is leading a, a parenting conference, a digital parenting conference. Uh, at the end of May, we'll be having a, a reconciliation event where we do and join together with other faith communities to do a walk for reconciliation uh, with our indigenous friends. Uh, we're hosting our first ever concert in this space in May. Steve Bell is coming uh, with Malcolm Geit from the UK to do a poetry reading. Uh, so that's happening at the end of May. So this is a great time to be connecting into the life of Jericho Ridge Community Church because there's lots of opportunities for you uh, in this space. And so you'll get a real sense of who we are and how we are together as uh, a family. But uh, we are continuing on Sundays uh, through to the end of June in our teaching series called This We Believe. And we've been walking through the 18 articles of our Confession of Faith document, which is that which we hold to as Mennonite brethren here in Canada. It's our articulation at this point in time of the things that we understand that the Bible teaches about a whole range of topics. And it really describes a little bit of what our unique stream of the Christian movement is. Uh, we're in the part of the stream that's called Anabaptism. And so we're, we're using this time to try and define and describe that a little bit for you. And as always, we'd love interaction with you uh, around that. But let me just sketch out a little bit of where we've been so far so you have a sense of some of these are the topics that we have covered. And then uh, there's still a lot left for us to dig into. So where we've been, we started with Article 1. We talked about what do we believe about God? We talked about what do we believe about the revelation of God? How do we know about God and God's self? Uh, creation and humanity. We talked about uh, discipleship. We talked about sin and evil. We talked about salvation. We talked about the Lord's Supper. And last weekend, I snuck into the Easter message our Article 18 on Christ's final triumph. So we got that one covered and out of the way. And now we're going to go back and look at uh, this weekend and next weekend two articles that really are at the heart of an Anabaptist understanding of what it means to be together as a community. So we're going to talk about uh, today the nature of the church, and then next weekend we will look at Article 7, which is about the mission of the church. So this is kind of a part one and part two on the topic of church. What does that mean as we look at the both capital C, big C entity called the church, and then here at Jericho, what does that mean and look like for us? So as we jump into this topic, I'm going to ask you just to conduct a little bit of a thought experiment uh, with me, and I'm going to give you different sort of dates in history, and I want you to think, what might the church have looked like in your imagination or from what we know from reading of history at that particular date, all right? So we're going to start way back 
and think about the church in AD or common era 63. Like what would the church have looked like right close to its early Genesis. We get a sense of some of that from the writings of the New Testament, that we're really talking about uh, groups of people, house churches essentially, scattered throughout the Mediterranean world, and uh, really a minority in their culture as a, a whole, learning to do life together uh, from a vast array of different cultural and religious backgrounds. Then fast forward a little bit, what does church look like in 393 CE. Well, this is a time of great infighting in the church. The church is becoming incorporated or enfolded into the imperial structures in Rome. The Roman Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity and then decided that that was going to be the official religion of the state. And there was lots of arguing. There was lots of church councils happening at this time, people fighting about different aspects of doctrine, kicking people out for all kinds of errors in their ways. So it was a very tumultuous time in the time of the church. Fast forward to 1223 CE. We're in the Middle Ages now. What does it mean to be the church, or what does it look like to be church in the Middle Ages? Well, we have, in this era... Uh, a monastic movement, ones that are led by, for example, St. Francis of Assisi. And they're, they're deciding that in order to maintain a purity of this thing called the church, they need to actually remove themselves and actually set up institutions whereby that they can preserve and advance knowledge and craft spaces for soul and art and culture to flourish. What does it mean to be the church in 1623 CE? Well, here the church is in the midst of a very tempestuous situation called the Reformation. People like Luther and Calvin are pushing back against this notion of the church and the state's interconnectedness that becomes then indistinguishable from political power structures. And so there's a whole level of fomentation that's happening and diversity that is emerging. What about 1993, when I talked to my grandparents about their rationale for going to or being church, they would talk about things like, well, you know, it's a good place for business connections, everybody does it, it's a social experience for us on Sunday mornings, it's good for the kids, they would say. So their experience of the church in Canada had become something quite different. And so I want us to just pause for a moment and, and think about just the incredible breadth and depth and diversity of just those few touchdowns in points in history. And I was only tracing one particular stream of the church, so saying nothing of the church in Asia or Africa or in other places in the world and in global history. That was just the smallest of small samples, but such incredible diversity. And so that begs the question, given all of that diversity, what do these things have in common other than the fact that they would have all claimed to call themselves church? And are there some through lines? Are there some anchor points we could go to and actually say, hey, these things actually had some things that overlapped with each other? Uh, well, we would look to the New Testament for those things. 
and can see uh, in our reading today some of the images and the word pictures that come up when it comes to the church in the New Testament. So if we look in the New Testament, what are some of the words or pictures that the New Testament uses to describe the church? If you can think of any, just shout them out. How's the church described? Witnessing, yeah, the church is a, is a mission. It has activity. We'll talk about that next week, yeah. What else? What are other images or phrases? A bride, yeah. There's this sense of, of that uh, bride of Christ is used. What else? Other images, phrases? A communion, yeah, the communion of saints, yeah. Really the sense of interconnectivity with one another. What else? fellowship. Yeah, absolutely. There's just so many rich words and phrases and images as you trace it through the New Testament. And they can be grouped into a couple of categories, just broadly speaking. Um, people, like the people of God, so describing the church as saints, describing the church as a bride or a body or a community, a family, body, those are just a few of the big picture categories. Uh, the church is described as a living, organic entity. Uh, it's described in many, many different ways. And we're going to look this morning at a particular letter uh, to one of those churches and see a few of those things. Um, this particular letter, 1 Corinthians, was written by a man named Paul. And Paul was one of the leaders in the early Christian movement. And he was writing to uh, this particular local church, which was a grouping of house churches in the city of Corinth. And this was a, a group of churches that uh, I should say up front, if you read through the book of 1 Corinthians, you say, these people had issues. There were lots and lots of challenges. And we preached through 1 Corinthians at different times. You can go back in the archives and look at that series. But we want to look this morning at chapter 1 because Paul starts his letter with really a descriptor of the church. And we'll see some of these images and words. We're going to actually see four of them, four things that the church is uh, in this. And then next weekend, we'll look together at what the church does. So turn with me in your Bibles or on your device to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we'll start reading, remembering that this is a letter that was written by a real person to a real group of people, but it's also instructive because in speaking to the particularities of their context, Paul actually does a great job at helping us understand some of the things that are true about the church, whether it's in the first century or the 21st century. So I'm reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 uh, from the New Living Translation. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and from our brother Sosthenes. I am writing to God's church in Corinth, to you who have been called by God to be his own holy people. So let's pause right away because we see here the first of the four things that Paul is going to say is true of the church. So the question, what is church? Well, the first question to answer is, who's in charge? Whose church is it? To whom does the church belong? And regardless of the label on the sign in our day and age, or what the property title says, or what the structure is, 
Paul argues strongly that this church belongs to someone, and it is God's church. This is the church that is those who have responded to God's call and God's invitation to get together. And I love how clear this is right off the hop. Paul doesn't say, I'm writing to you, church in Corinth, my church, whom I pastored, whom I planted. Paul says, no, no, no. I'm writing to the church of Corinth, but this is the church of people who have responded to God's call and who have said yes under the banner of Jesus. And, and we carry this language forward and we express this in our confession of faith. We say this in Article 6. We believe, quote, that the church is the people called by God through Jesus Christ. And if you are a, a linguist here, you want to think about the emphasis being on the right syllable. So in Paul's description of the church, he says the accent is always on God. God is the one who initiates. God is the one who creates the people. God is the one who does the invitation. And we are those that respond. So what are the implications then of this being God's church, this thing called God's project? In the commentary on the Confession of Faith, we say this, quote, when Jesus said that he would build his church, he was establishing the primary institution through which God has chosen to do his work in the world. The church of Christ is God's agent of redemption in the world, unquote. And this has incredible implications for us. Regardless of what the structure of church is, regardless of what time in history we find ourselves. The implications are that because God does the choosing and the calling, Paul says, I responded to this, and my brother Sosthenes responded to this, and you in Corinth responded to this, and now that makes us something. That makes us a people. And so the first implication of being church is that we have dual connectivity. We have dual connectivity. First connectivity is primarily to Christ. We are united with Christ. And then also we are connected with each other in community. And not just in a local expression. We're actually connected with each other internationally and historically. And we think and we act as a part of the global community. And an example of this is Jay and Christiana were here with us here at Jericho Ridge uh, doing their training at CanIL for this last year. On Friday, they've moved back to the States, but they are still part of the church. We can still be church with them, even though they are at a distance now from us. We're still connected in something because God, has, we have said yes to God's invitation. Let's keep reading and seeing what else Paul says in 1 Corinthians about the church. So we got halfway through verse 2. We'll pick up the second half of that. Paul says, he, God, made you holy by means of Christ Jesus, just as God did for all people everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. May God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. So the second thing that Paul says right off the top in his 
architecture of helping people understand what the church is, is he says the church is comprised of people who are being made holy. But if we are being made holy, the implication is we are not there yet. We are on the way, and so we are being made holy, but we are far from perfect. He, Paul says, made you holy by means of Christ Jesus. Another translation uh, says he made you holy because you belong to Christ Jesus. So if you're like me, your immediate thought is holy? That seems like you're overselling it, Paul. <laughs> if you read the rest of the book of Corinthians, like these people are holy? Or if you've been around any church community for any people, any length of time, you look around and say, these people are holy? <laughs> what in the world is up with that? Paul, have you met some of them? Some of them are hypocrites. Some of them are worse than that. What do you mean by saying these people are holy? Well, this is a word that Paul uses regularly to describe the process of God's vision of what church is. And, and it's part of the reason why in the language of the New Testament there's no such thing as a Christian with just singular connectivity, only me and Jesus. There's always dual connectivity to God and to other people. And that is because part of God's vision for you and I to be made holy, to be changed, to be transformed, to be more and more like Christ, to grow in our character, in our depth, in our souls, it actually comes as a result of us relating to each other in this thing called church. Part of your holiness, part of your personal development plan is that God put you in a group of people who are going to assist you in your holiness development. Because God is not just going to zap you into holiness. God is going to use various things, circumstances, people in your lives to actually knock those rough edges off of you and I. You will be helped in your holiness journey by people around you and around I. And I try as hard as I can not to use this word regularly because I think it has become associated in my mind with a musty hall in the basement of buildings called churches, but the word is fellowship, fellowship halls. But in Article 6, we use the word fellowship, and we define it in this way in our Confession of Faith. Quote, the church is a covenant community in which members are mutually accountable to one another. We share each other's joys and burdens and we admonish and we correct one another. That last part is the hard part of holiness and this is where a church differentiates itself from my grandparents' picture of it in their minds as a wonderful social club where there's good things for your children. This is a place where you come as you are but we are not content to leave you as you are. Our objective is to partner with the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in your life and in God's world for the purpose of transformation in your life. You should be a different person. Incrementally, 
with maybe one step forward, two steps back, three steps forward, one step back at different times in your journey than you were several years ago because of your engagement with something called church. And the implication of this is that in the New Testament, we are called to mutual accountability, not just cozy fellowship. And this is actually very counter to our North American way of thinking. But in the New Testament, the whole, when the church is described, the whole is always prior to the individual. And it gives identity and shapes the individual as opposed to the reverse as we are accustomed to experiencing it in the Western world. The whole is working on and shaping us as individuals. Relationships, where spiritual friendships develop, service experiences, equipping spaces, casual conversations with others, times of prayer. When we submit ourselves to one another so that we can grow, we become a community of people in progress. And, and this requires both that sense of mutuality so that we can be accountable to each other, but it also requires patience because none of this happens overnight. And so a sense of patient mutual accountability where you root yourself in community and when life gets hard or when people find things out about you that you don't like, you stay put so that that shaping influence can continue in your life. It's a very difficult process for us as North Americans to undergo, but it's the vision of the New Testament for what it means to be church. So church is those who have said yes to God's invitation. Church is people in process. Let's keep reading and we're going to see two other things that church is. Let's pick it up again in verse 4. Paul writing says, I always give thanks to my God for the gracious gifts that he has given you now that you belong to Christ Jesus. For through him, God has enriched you, church, enriched your church in every way, with all of your eloquent words, all of your knowledge. This confirms that what I told you about Christ is true. Now you have every spiritual gift you need as you eagerly wait for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will keep you strong till the end, so you'll be free from all blame on the day when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. God will do this. For God is faithful to do what he says, and he's invited you into partnership with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So what is church? Church, thirdly, is a partnership of multi-gifted persons. So built on that foundation of mutuality, there is a sense of giftedness that God has given this is a place where everyone has a role to play because everyone has gifts to offer. And that's the cool thing about being part of a community is that there are gifts that you have to bring to the community that I don't have and gifts that I might have that you don't have. And when we put all of those together in the mix, then we have what it is that God has designed and desired. The church to be a partnership of multi-gifted persons. And the early Anabaptists in the 16th century in particular were really driving 
at this notion of the church as being a space uh, they would use terms like the priesthood of all believers that God has called and gifted each and every person to use their gift in some way. And Paul goes on later in the book of 1 Corinthians to talk quite extensively about what he means by this and how to shape that and some of the negative iterations and some of the positive iterations of that. But I want simply to note that every church, including Jericho Ridge, I believe has every gift to do every assignment that God has intended for it to carry out. We have every spiritual gift that's necessary here at Jericho to accomplish the assignment that God's given us at our day and time in history. And the church moves through different seasons and different needs in different seasons are evident and different expressions of leadership are needed in different ways. There will come a day when the needs of Jericho Ridge are no longer a match or a fit with the gifts of leadership that I have to offer. And so the elders and I talk fairly frequently and openly about that. Is this still a fit for everybody? What's the, what is the needs in the life at Jericho Ridge at this time? Because we recognize that all of us are going to leave Jericho Ridge at some point, either by choice, in a huff, or in a pine box. Those are your three options. But the question is, while you are here, what is the contribution that you want to make? What are the gifts that God has given you to do? How will you be contributing to the vitalized part of the community while you are here at Jericho Ridge? The way we say this in our confession of faith is this way in Article 6. Quote, through the Holy Spirit, God gives gifts to each person, each member, for the well-being of the whole body. And these gifts are to be exercised in God's service to build up the church and to minister to serve in the world. We'll get to talking a little bit more about that next week. But to this point, I want to simply just pause and, and ask the question of the implications of all of us being gifted to serve in different ways. And that is the question, what are your gifts? What are the contributions that you have to make into this particular Space, And I'm not talking about like how to help volunteer to run Jericho. I'm talking about the way in which Jericho equips and strengthens you to do the work that God's called you to do in the work and the gifts that are necessary to put around each of you to help you do that. So let me give you an example uh, of this. And, and uh, they've, I've asked permission if I can share this, and this is not to toot their own horn in any way because they would hate that. But Ian and Kathy, have, have, God's given them a vision to host families from Ukraine in their home. And so they have been passionately pursuing that over the last uh, 60 days and trying to figure out what does that mean and look like to actually create our home as a space, and so they've needed some other gifts like plumbers to come in and help kind of make that happen for them. They've reached out and talked to people who have gifts and skills to offer in, in the government and areas in immigration. And so we were just talking this morning and they've heard that uh, the, all of the hurdles have been completed and that they're going to be uh, receiving one family, a pastor's wife and their daughter on Tuesday um, from Ukraine. And so... They've just felt like in one of the th gifts that we have to offer to the global body of Christ right now is space in our home. How do we maximize that? How do we figure we've got space in our lives for that? 
And so they've been chasing this down. And so there may come times when we reach out to the rest of you and say, hey, we might need some additional support in these areas with these people and with the needs that, that come uh, into that space. And that's one way, just one small example of how we can be church together as we live this out. It may very well be that next Sunday, that by God's grace, that they'll be here. And, and we'll be able to support and pray with them and journey with them for whatever time God gives us together. But this all because people started thinking, hey, what does it look like to use the gifts that, that I might have, the resources that I might have in my life at this period of time to deploy them for the work of God's kingdom in the world? And so our model here at Jericho is we believe that you're gifted and we want to help you figure out what is your calling and then we affirm that. We step in behind and around you and say, how can we do that together with you? Let's figure that out. And so let's be in prayer for Ian and for Kathy and for their family. They put their name down not just to host one family, but two families. And so that process is an ongoing one. And uh, so we'll keep you updated uh, on, on that as, as we get more information on that. But this is, a, this is an iteration of us being a, a community together. And if you've been around church for any length of time, you know that uh, this thing called church does not go smoothly always. And this was especially true of the church in Corinth. So let's keep reading. Uh, in chapter 1, we're going to see and explore uh, something else that Paul brings up right away to make sure that we're alerted to it because it is also part of what it means to be church. So chapter 1, verse 10, Paul says, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. I'll keep reading. For some members of Chloe's household told me about your quarrels, dear brothers and sisters. Some of you are saying, oh, I'm a follower of Paul. Others are saying, ah, no, I follow Apollos. Others, I follow Peter. Or, oh, I follow only Christ. Has Christ been divided into factions? Was I, Paul, crucified for you? Were any of you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not. I thank God I didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, for no one can say they were baptized in my name. Oh, yes, I also forgot I baptized the household of Stephanus, but I don't remember baptizing anyone else. For Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the good news and not with clever speech for fear that the cross of Christ would lose its power. This is always a funny section of Scripture to me because Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, still can't quite seem to remember who he baptized when he was in Corinth. But what I love about this is the Scriptures are very real and authentic about just the stuff of life. Paul has to write to this group of people and say, would you stop fighting with each other? Like, there's just a real sense of humanity in this. Real people's names with real arguments that they were having about life and about theology. And notice what Paul does. He makes an appeal to a particular kind of unity here. Not a bland kind of total agreement. He, he calls for unity around essentials, that the life, the death, the resurrection, the essential of Jesus might be the centering of the story of the church. And so we, we see right away in this text the fourth and final thing that uh, is, gives our answer to the question, what is church? Church is a diverse group of people. 
And we are supposed to be united in thought and in purpose for the sake of witness. Doesn't always go smoothly that way, but that is the goal to which we aspire. In our confession of faith, we get at this by saying, quote, the church is one body of believers, men and women from every nation, race, and class, and the head of this body is Christ. The church, united by one spirit, makes Christ visible in the world. The church exists as local bodies of believers and as a worldwide community of faith. We exist and are related to people in this thing, if we use the metaphor of family, who are weird and who you don't like and with whom you will disagree on any number of points. And that includes within Jericho and outside of Jericho, globally and historically. There are those with whom you will find alignment theologically and those with whom you will disagree. And that's what makes the church frustratingly complex and challenging, but it is also something that makes it powerfully beautiful. In his excellent book on this topic, uh, A Fellowship of Difference, Difference, D-I-F-F-E-R-E-N-T-S, Scott McKnight uh, says this about God's vision for doing life together. Quote, in North America, we like ourselves. We like our way of thinking. We like our music. And we like, well, our everything. So we separate ourselves. We separate all the differences and the difference and scatter them across towns and cities so that each group can comfortably worship on their own. We have churches for men that are not really for women. We have churches for wealthy who are not really for people who are poor. We have churches for whites and churches for Mexican Americans and African Americans and Asian Americans, churches for liberals, churches for fundamentalists, for those who follow Warren or Hybels or Stanley or Hamilton or Chandler or Wesley or Luther or Aquinas or Menno. He names us. We got called out there, guys. But then Sunday morning becomes an exercise in cultural and spiritual segregation. And this has a colossally important and detrimental impact on the life of the church. Because the church that God wants is one that is brimming with difference and difference. End quote. As challenging as it is, there is a real beauty to this kind of diversity that I see Jesus inviting us into. And this is the final implication. Though it is the most annoying thing in the world about the life of the church, diversity is actually our strength. The church is the primary place of God's presence in the world and the primary means of God's mission in the world and God has a lot of things that God needs to get done, and so it's going to take a lot of different people. And friends, this is the transforming power of the gospel and the spirit at work, because in a church, even a church like Jericho, people who were formerly enemies can be united. People who did not see eye to eye on things like politics or issues of culture can still look one another in the eye and still say, I'm, I'm not just a friend, I'm a brother or a sister in Christ Jesus. Ron and the worship and song team are coming. But let me say this. There's something actually powerful and 
winsome in this sense of the church being comprised of people who are so powerfully different than, than you and me. And part of this is just a, a witness to the world because it's so different than most spaces that we find ourselves in, in modern North American life. And that's part of why I, I just, there's such a beauty to it. And it's part of why I want to give my life to this thing called the church. And not just vocationally, but just as a participant, a co-participant with you. And I want to invite you to do the same. Just to, to today maybe take in your heart that moment to just recommit yourself to this thing called church. It may have hurt you. It may frustrate you. It may not be aligned with you on all kinds of parts of your life. But it is still the hope of the world. I'm reminded on this topic of what a joy and a privilege that it is to be part of this thing called church in our day and age, to be part of an outpost of hope that despite our weaknesses, Jericho, despite our frailty, despite our failures and our faulting attempts and limitations, we are committed to being church together. And this matters because God has no plan B God's plan is to work in and use the church to express God's wisdom to the world. And when Jesus said Jesus was going to build his church, he was establishing the primary institution through which God has chosen to do his work in the world. The church is God's agent of redemption and reconciliation. This is God's church. We are God's people gifted by God's Spirit, united in Christ for the purpose of worship and mission in the world. And this will shape us, if we let it, into the people that God desires us to become. Let's pray together. Father God, you are wise and all-knowing. Jesus you are creative. Spirit, you are empowering. And so you have put together in your infinite wisdom this thing called church. We don't always understand it, we confess. We don't always know what to do with it or how to be it. And so as and when we fall as individuals, as an institution, as a community, we ask for your forgiveness. And when we are off track, we ask for you to do a reconciling work in our lives, bringing us back into relationship with you and with one another. Bind us together, God. Knit us together in love for one another and for you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit, we pray. Amen.